BAI recently conducted its BAI Banking Outlook research, looking at the challenges and opportunities ahead for financial services leaders in 2020. Are bankers and customers aligned on what the focus should be for banks next year? What will keep a customer from leaving one bank for another? Is there a future for open banking in the U.S.? And will customers trust their money with the Googles, PayPals, and Apples of the world? Today we'll discuss what 600 consumers and 400 bankers said about these questions and more with Carl Dahlgren, Managing Director of Research at BAI, and Jason Mencius, Director of Research. Welcome to BAI Banking Strategies, your home for actionable insights that'll help you power smart decisions in the financial services industry. I'm your host, Matt McGuire, the Digital Director at BAI. Come on in. Thanks for tuning in. It's great to have you here with us. On today's show, we have two of BAI's finest, Carl Dahlgren, Managing Director of Research, and Jason Mencius, Director of Research. Carl and Jason, welcome. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate you having us. Thanks for having us, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what did you guys find most surprising about the data in the BAI Banking Outlook report? I think there's a phenomenon going on in banking right now. Um, Certainly, the competitive environment has amped up as of late. Uh, There's a lot of direct banks moving into the marketplace, and with uh, rates changing, it's been an environment where... um, there's been fierce competition. What was surprising to me is how the customers are reacting to that. So if you look at whether or not consumers are willing to bank at direct banks, uh, there's obviously some differences between generations. So for boomers, only one in 10 boomers is willing to go completely online untethered and use a direct bank only. Seven in 10 would like to have some form of uh, branches for some of their accounts. And as, as you move to millennials, it's a 50-50 split. So it becomes uh, less than five out of 10 versus seven out of 10. What does that show us? Well, what's happening here is that there's a, a sort of a disintermediation that's happening in the banking industry and it's benefiting the consumers and you see customers going with uh, best of breed so there's an unbundling customers are willing to have uh, certain accounts at direct banks and other accounts at banks that have uh, branches so that was surprising to me it's it's not that uh, the, the two of them go to battle like a Thanksgiving uh, day football game and one comes out the victor it's more complicated than that and um, you just see the direct banks excelling in some areas and then the traditional banks in others particularly in the area of those with the accounts that have a lot of transactions the direct banks seem to be doing well with with, with savings and money market accounts. Jason, you've had, had access to the same data. What uh, caught your eye? Yeah, so the biggest surprise for me revolved around net promoter score. We ask that question pretty much every year, and most banks track that uh, on an ongoing basis for both the consumer side as well as the small business side. We're focused mainly on the consumer side uh, for this survey. And uh, what caught my eye is that banks are really making some pretty big strides year over year in terms of loyalty of their customer base. So last year, we asked a question on net promoter score, just a general uh, net promoter score question, and the score came out to 35. This year, banks are up to 43. 
Now, while that's still low compared to some other industries that may be, um, you know, 50 is average, you might see some industries up at 60 or 70. I know credit unions generally score a little bit better, 60 or 70. Um, on the net promoter score, but banks, that's a pretty big jump year over year, 35 to 43. The other thing is looking at two experiences or interactions that consumers might have with their financial institution and two of those that may cause negative impacts to net promoter score. And those were um, actually opening account an account online with their main financial institution or experiencing fraud. So fraud, kind of self-explanatory. You'd expect net promoter score to drop if you've experienced fraud. It's a pretty traumatic experience. Uh, but the one that caught my eye the most was that the net promoter score dropped for consumers that open their accounts online to 35. So 43 overall, 35 if they open an account online. And that just really goes to show that banks have some improvements to make in terms of their experience with their, um, that they're offering their customers and opening accounts online. Um, the other thing revolves around uh, generational segments. So when you talk about net promoter score and look at how uh, the generational segments score their banks overall, the older the customer gets, the more loyal they are with their bank. So that kind of makes sense. But if you look at it inversely um, with the younger generations, those are the generations that are least loyal to their bank. So you look at uh, Gen Z and Millennial, they have the overall lowest, so they're under 43 for their net promoter score. And then Boomers and the mature generation, they're, they're above uh, 43. So banks do very well at gaining the loyalty over time, but they have to make improvements kind of upfront because you don't get a lot of time to create that loyalty before um, those younger generations are, are a little bit more apt to, to bounce around. Good insights. We'd like to see those net promoter scores continue to rise, and it's good to know what areas need attention if that's going to happen. Carl, what are the key business challenges and areas of investment in the industry going into 2020? Yeah, so Matt, I, this um, ties into the previous question that you asked me. Um, I mentioned the hyper-competitive environment that we're in. And I think that's going to be seen and reflected in the top three priorities going into 2020 for bankers. So those top three priorities are customer digital experience, new customer acquisition, and loan growth. Um, so that's uh, quite a big shift. We asked these same questions a year ago. And the number one challenge was deposit growth. And that's dropped off uh, the top three entirely. Uh, not far. It's, it still ranks number four. But uh, the digital experiences. It wasn't even in the top three last year, and now it's, uh, it holds the number one position. And actually, new customer acquisition, which is number two, is really related to the digital experience because a lot of the new customers are coming by way of the digital channel. So that's a, that's a big change. Um, I think the uh, digital experience is number one just because the banks are uh, – there's a lot of competition in that area. There's a lot of people that are entering into the market, the digital banks. Um, just a few weeks ago, we saw that Google is jumping into the mix with, uh, with checking accounts by way of uh, Stanford Credit Union and Citibank in a project that they're, they're calling Cash, which is spelled C-A-C-H-E. So there's a lot of entrance. Um, it's causing a battleground on the, for digital experience, and that's the number one challenge. What you see if we, we asked a question um, that also has some insight into this, and that's what are the top areas of investments for banks in the coming year? And honestly, that hasn't changed year over year. The top two investments are technology and platform integration. 
and then also customer digital experience. And the top one really is related to the digital experience because you've got to be able to have integrated systems that present sort of a unified front for the customer, no matter the, the channel that they're using or the product that, uh, that they're either getting information on or applying for. So uh, definitely the bankers are aligned in terms of where they're investing their money and where they see their challenges. Good. So Jason, how are consumers' channel preferences changing and evolving over time? And how are financial services organizations supporting these changes? Well, Matt, there has been a pretty big shift, as you might expect, uh, especially recently. So um, we asked the consumers um, in the survey what their projected channel usage would be three years from now. And basically, it's two-thirds digital, one-third human. So digital, you're thinking mobile, uh, mobile apps, online banking, ATMs. Human would be, you know, the drive up in the branch or call center. Um, so that's a pretty big shift from what we saw probably even in his you know, short as three years ago, that those numbers would have been flipped. So it would have been two-thirds human, one-third digital. So it's a pretty big shift in, in just a short three-year period. Um, the other thing is not necessarily channel usage, um, in particular to a one, one particular channel. It's uh, more of an omni-channel experience. So not just focusing on digital or human, but really the, the seamless transition between channels, which banks know this as the omni-channel experience. So when you look at transactions and interactions, the younger generations tend to use their, um, interact with their banks, not digitally, but with the, um, with the human channels as well. So they interact with their banks the most and they use all the channels. They don't just focus on digital. They don't just focus on one channel over or prefer one channel over the other. They use all channels and they need them to work uh, seamlessly. So banks, Going back to Carl's point in terms of their investments, they're focusing on, in, on digital and technology, and that's one of the areas that the banks have traditionally lagged with the omni-channel experience. That's the one, the one downfall that they've had. They did very well with most channels, but the digital channel has been lagging for years, and it's kind of caught up, and now they're really, really investing heavily in that to kind of close the gap and make that omni-channel experience uh, what the consumers are hoping and kind of what they look at you know, with other competitors out there, not necessarily financial institutions, but, you know, you think of Amazon, Google, uh, all the other um, more advanced platforms out there. Sure. We hear a lot about Amazon and they're frequently uh, cited when doing comparisons. Carl, are financial service organizations meeting the needs of consumers when it comes to the customer experience they offer? Well, it's interesting that um, we've asked the question a few years in a row about what the bankers feel the most important um, improvements are for a customer experience and what the consumers think are uh, the most important for improving their customer experience. And this year, um, relative to previous years, the bankers and the consumers are uh, most aligned. Uh, so that's good news. So that means that the banks uh, do understand what the customers are looking for and they're investing in the right places. There was only one difference. So for the consumers, top three priorities for improving their customer experience were delivering tools and options to customize uh, their solutions, improving the omni-channel experience, and then also uh, enhancing the mobile channel. And that appeared for the bankers as well, except for there was one other one for the bankers, which was making better use of data about customers to improve product and service recommendations. So obviously, product and service recommendations can 
drive revenue, and so that's probably an important factor for bankers. But again, we see alignment in this area, so I think that uh, this year, relative to previous years, they're doing a good job. Uh, There is some variation, though, when it comes to uh, if if you slice this data generationally. So it's a little bit more difficult, depending on the types of customers you have, to to hit the nail on the head from the banker's perspective. So for uh, Gen X and uh, Millennial, the mobile channel is super important. And uh, they're looking for uh, improvements in that area. And then if you look at boomers, they're the only generation that talked about transforming uh, branches. So there's a little bit of a difference depending on how you slice the data. Sounds good. Uh, Jason, open banking, it's been a popular subject this year, especially in the U.S. This has been something that's, um, you know, been up and running and uh, is popular in the U.K. But will open banking become a reality in the U.S.? And if so, what's the outlook on when? Yeah, you mentioned um, it being uh, open banking being a reality over in the UK and the, the European countries already. So we wanted to get kind of the feeling from the U.S. consumers what their what their familiarity is with open banking. Do they even know what it is? So we asked them, or if they're familiar. So overall, it's about fifty percent, fifty fifty are familiar with it, fifty percent are not. Although when you talk to the younger generations, you got Gen Z and Millennial are much more familiar with it. Gen Z, 60% said they were familiar with it. Then you drop down to the boomers, which only 21% were familiar with it. So what we wanted to do is narrow it down to, first of all, the consumer base that was actually knew what open banking was and kind of asked them what their sentiment was in terms of whether or not they think it will become a reality. And then we also asked bankers the same question when they think it's going to be a reality or if it's going to be reality in the U.S. And what we see is the consumers are a little bit more optimistic on it becoming a reality in the U.S. in a much shorter time frame. So we look at uh, the consumer side, they're thinking about five years or less looking at uh, when that may happen in the U.S. Bankers are a little bit longer term. They're thinking five years plus. And there's a higher percentage of bankers that think it may never become a reality in the U.S. with about 12% saying that consumers were much lower, only about 5% of consumers saying that it's never going to happen. So bankers need to be prepared for it. It's going to happen at some point. Just whether or not um, when it's going to happen is kind of up in the air still. When we talk to bankers out there um, in some of our face-to-face interactions with them, they fall more in line with, it's very ambiguous right now. They don't really have a solid plan on how to implement it, when it's going to be implemented. So I lean more towards the opinion of the banker that's going to be a little bit longer term, kind of wait and see approach with most banks. Open banking could really be part of a uh, digital customer experience. I'm uh, wondering, Carl, what do you think would help financial services organizations deliver a better digital customer experience, at least in the short term? Matt, if you think about all the questions you've asked us today and the answers that we've provided, there is one common theme, and that is access to information and data. That seems to be where the competitive environment is taking place. And so... It's important for banks to leverage the data that they already have. Um, Jason just got done talking about open banking, and that would be access to information outside the boundaries of the firm, outside of the bank itself. But earlier in this discussion, we talked about where banks are making investments, and it's access to data across different systems and across different channels. So that's super important, and clearly that's an area in which banks can compete if they have better access to information on their customers than other banks have on their customers, they should leverage that. 
So the idea here is that um, invest as the banks are suggesting they should invest. Utilize the data that, that you already have and make sure that you're cross-selling to the customers uh, that you already have and that you're making the experience of applying for new um, and different products uh, seamless and uh, utilizing the information, whether it's uh, making credit decisions, you have superior access to information. Whether it's helping your customer apply for a new account, you have superior access to information. So it's utilizing and leveraging that uh, sort of data asset that you have. Jason and Carl, great insights. Always good to get your thoughts on the latest BAI Banking Outlook report. Thanks for stopping by the podcast studio. Carl Dahlgren is the Managing Director of Research at BAI, and Jason Mencius is the Director of Research Insights and Content Delivery. Look for them both on LinkedIn. And here are three key takeaways from today's podcast. Number one, digital and technology are at the top of this list. The number one business challenge for the industry is improving the customer's digital experience. And to help with that, the key area of investment will be on technology integration. Consumers say special emphasis must be online account opening. Number two, convenience has been redefined. It's no longer defined as branches and ATMs. Consumers want a convenient digital experience. That said, they still want all of the traditional challenges to be at their disposal. Number three, what's ahead? For starters, bankers will need to create a stronger value proposition and greater incentives if they want consumers to stop unbundling products and holding deposits at multiple organizations. Net promoter scores improved from 35 last year to 43 in 2019 but fraud and opening an account digitally are two experiences that threaten continued improvement if the customer experience doesn't improve. And lastly, consumers and bankers aren't quite in sync about whether open banking will become a reality in the US. Consumers are more optimistic. And now, BAI Banking Strategies presents my 21-year-old self, where our podcast guest talks about what they were like at 21 and what advice they'd like to go back and give themselves to make their rise a little smoother. Jason, we had you tackle this one on a previous episode. So Carl, take us back to 21 and let us know what sort of information would have helped you along. Thanks, Matt. Um, well, unfortunately, I've got to go back a number of years to remember what it was like to be 21. I've got a kid that's just a couple years away from that now, and I have had some experience providing him with, uh, with some advice along the way. I will tell you that, um, and first of all, I'll keep the scope of this to the professional world because that's what we're dealing with here. I would say that up until that point, most of your life and performance from a professional perspective is wrapped around education. And uh, for the most part, as an individual contributor, you can influence your own performance uh, just by motivating yourself. You're gunning after good grades. Your world is fairly contained without outside influences that are outside of your control. And I, would, I guess I would just say that really quickly after you get out of school, Things change. It's not just about the grades anymore. There's a lot of other things that matter. How you work with people, um, how you work in teams, your network. Your friends and your family are going to help you a lot, and the people that you know professionally will help you a lot in terms of your ability to, to move forward with your career. 
I guess what I would have liked to have known, there's so much focus on being successful in an academic environment that when you quickly make that transition, it's what do you need to be successful in the work environment? And while I'm not underplaying the importance of an education, there's just a different type of education that occurs once you're 21 and you come out of undergrad and there's a lot of different variables that play into whether or not you're successful. And if you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to advance it yet another 10 years and say, what would I have done when I was 31? And um, along that theme, you're successful in your career if you're a rock star and rise above the rest and outperform others sort of in the first decade of your career. But again, you see a transformation and a change. It's at age 31, it's not about you. It's not about you being successful. It's about how you facilitate and create an environment uh, for others to be successful. Uh, so you quickly have to make a transition yet again. So uh, when you're 21, it's hard to know what the recipe is in the next decade of your life. And then that recipe doesn't necessarily translate perfectly into the decade after that as well. Thanks again for stopping by the BAI Banking Strategies podcast. Check out our episode archive at BAI.org and on all the major podcast apps. We'll talk to you soon.